Well, I've got some uh, good news for you, or maybe it's bad news. I don't know. It's, it's up to you how you're going to interpret this. There's only 18 weeks left till Christmas. I mean, it's going to be here before you know it. And uh, for some of us, that's bad news. And for some, it's good news, okay? I remember as a kid, I was always excited about Christmas because, you know, I wanted to know what am I going to get as a present. And so, you know how kids are. Uh, I would spend, uh, you know, every, every day or at least once a week, I would visit every closet in our house looking for things that might be hidden there, you know, that were going to be in a, un, wrapped under the tree. Or uh, once the tree was up and the presents were under there, and you know how it is. You, you shake the present, you feel it to see what's, what's there. And if by chance... Some of the wrapping paper was, you know, the tape had come unglued a little bit and, and you could take a sneak peek to see what you were going to get at Christmas. We love sneak peeks, don't we? I mean, think about it. You, you, you see the trailers for the upcoming movies and they whet your appetite and you want to, you, you know, I'm going to go see this movie. Or they do that with TV shows. It's a, it is a science now to create preview trailers to catch the attention of people and make you want to watch the movie or, or whatever. Well, we're going to look today at the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is a great book for a sneak peek. Because in this book, we're going to see glimpses of God's coming Messiah. Now, as we get into Zechariah, let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles or look here on the screen uh, or in your notes for those of you here in the, in the worship center at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. Um, because we're going to get this sneak, sneak peek of the coming of God's Messiah, that, that Messiah that was promised at the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, God said that, that this one would come. So Zechariah 1 and verse 1. It says, In November of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave this message to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah and grandson of Edo. Now, <clears throat> we saw this sort of reference last week in the prophet Haggai, uh, because Haggai talked about he delivered his message to the returned exiles in Jerusalem in the second year of King Darius. So Haggai and Zechariah are fellow prophets working at the same time in the same location in Jerusalem, and their job was to encourage the people in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, in fact, Zechariah's very name would have been a source of encouragement to the people because his name means the one God remembers. And his name would be a source of encouragement to the people because it would say God remembers you, remembers your situation, your plight that you're in. He hasn't forgotten you at all. <clears throat> now, there are two other things I want you to see in this in verse 1 here. Notice that this verse identifies Zechariah as the grandson of somebody called Edo. Edo is a priest that's listed in the list of all the priests that accompanied Zerubbabel back uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem in 538-37 B.C. And so, obviously, probably Zechariah was born in Babylon. And when he traveled with his grandfather and family back to Jerusalem, he was a young man. But probably <coughs> he was at the age 
where he now could become a priest just like his grandfather and maybe his father as well. And so he was a prophet as well as a priest, which is a very unusual combination in the Old Testament. But a second thing that I want you to, to catch uh, in here is he's identified as the son of somebody called Berechiah. Now, when you go to the Old Testament, you're going to find that there are a number of Zacharias that are mentioned in the Old Testament. But only one of those has a father called Berechiah. And that's important because it, it really is significant because of a statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35. He's talking to his enemies. He's talking to the Jewish people, and most specifically, he's talking to the Jewish leaders. And look what he says. He says, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion, and you will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, other than that statement, we know nothing of the death of Zechariah that must have occurred sometime after 515 B.C. when the, the temple, uh, rebuilding of the temple was finished. Now, we learned last week that Haggai was focusing on uh, the rebuilding of the temple. And Zechariah is briefly going to focus on folks get back to work rebuilding the temple. But beyond that, Zechariah is also going to be talking to them about rebuilding their spiritual commitment to the Lord God. Uh, because he was concerned that they had fallen away from God. Now, one of the things about the book of Zechariah that makes it stand out is that it is a book that has a lot of, well, it really is a book that we would call an apocryphal book. Uh, an apocalyptic book, excuse me, an apocalyptic book. And, and that means that uh, it was full of visions and angelic messengers. There was a lot of symbolism, a lot of uh, meaningful numbers in this book. In fact, <clears throat> the term apocalyptic comes from the Greek word, which means revelation or reveal or unveiling or disclosure. Therefore, apocalyptic literature is the disclosure of future events and always through some kind of a source, whether it's a vision or maybe some kind of angelic messenger who appears, they're giving these disclosures of future events that are going to happen. And they usually contain very vivid symbolism that's there and, and special meaning that's given to the numbers uh, that are used in those disclosures. <coughs> Excuse me, the theme of apocalyptic literature is almost always the final triumph of God and his people over the forces of evil. And that really is a strong theme in the book of Zechariah. In addition, one of the other things about Zechariah, that he comes second only to Isaiah. Zechariah is a book where we see lots and lots of references or glimpses to God's coming Messiah. Lots of prophecies about the coming Messiah. And uh, in fact, these prophecies concerning the, the coming of God's Messiah are so prevalent and so obvious in the book of Zechariah 
that the New Testament writers quoted from the book of Zechariah no less than 40 different times throughout the New Testament. So this is a prominent book in showing us glimpses of the Messiah. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's start, though, by talking about why it is we need the Messiah. And that's found really in the first chapter in verses 2 through 6. God's reminder of past wickedness. God's reminder of past wickedness. <clears throat> this book begins, after that introductory verse, begins with a strong reminder of the reason why the Messiah must come. And that is the fact that humanity is alienated from God. We have been cut off from God because of our wickedness, because of the sin in our life. The Bible is very clear, Old Testament and New Testament, that all of us are sinners and all of us stand condemned and judged by God. All of us need rescuing. And so there was a need for a Messiah to come to rescue us. So these first six verses... Uh, after that introductory verse, uh, the verses of 2 through, chapter, uh, through verse 6 are really a call to the, people, uh, to the people to repent of their apathy toward God. You see, that apathy, is, of course, is seen in the fact that they had kind of stopped and were no, long, no longer interested in rebuilding the temple. They were apathetic to it. In fact, what was happening is that the people had begun to ignore God in their life. And so Zechariah is stepping up, and God is speaking through Zechariah to say, don't ignore me. You need to turn to me. Your life is filled with sin. Repent and go in a different direction. So let's pick up reading in, in verse 2. I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestor. Now, this is God, and he's speaking to the people in Jerusalem there in, in, in that year, uh, in these years. He says, therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's army. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen or pay attention when the earlier prophets said to them, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. Where are your ancestors now? They and the prophets are long dead, but everything I said through my servants, the prophets, happened to your ancestors, just as I said. As a result, they repented and said, we have received what we deserve from the Lord of heaven's army. He has done what he said he would do. <clears throat> Here is a real indictment of the sins of the people, of their ignorance and their apathy toward God. And as a result of that, they were experiencing God's displeasure uh, because they had abandoned God in the past. And now this new generation is also ignoring God and, and falling away from Him. And, and so God is calling on them, don't follow that pattern of your forefathers. Come back and repent. Go in a different direction completely. See, their repentance is going to be seen clearly in the fact that they will gain interest and they'll set back to the task of rebuilding the temple. Notice here how God mentions that he brought judgment on the previous generations. That serves as a reminder to these people that God wants them to repent in this generation and, and to turn to him and remain faithful in, in following him. <clears throat> now, 
Here in chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, we start, we see there's going to be two main sections in the book of Zechariah. Uh, two sections that um, will be divided. There, there'll be a little uh, kind of a subsection here and there throughout that. But the two main sections really are going to spell out, <clears throat> first of all, uh, God's love for the people. And then second, God's coming Messiah. And so that begins there in, in verse 7 in, in chapter 1. And uh, uh, really, in some ways, the two sections are related to the literary style that's used. The first section that goes from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6 and verse 8 is what we would call uh, apocalyptic. There are eight different visions that are given in one night to Zechariah, and he relays those, those visions in his, um, in his narrative here in those first six chapters of this book. Uh, and so this section is really going to be kind of weird if you really want to look at it. It's going to be talking about things that you and I have no clue what it really means because they're apocalyptic. There's lots of symbolism here. But we're not going to get into that, okay? We're going to look at the second section, okay? You'll just have to go and find those for yourself. But let me just tell you again why, what those, um, those visions are trying to convey to the people, and that is simply this. God still loves them. It's God's reassurance of his love for them. That's what this whole section is about. For instance, look in verse 14 of chapter 1. Then the angel said to me, Shout this message for all to hear. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love for Jerusalem and Mount Zion is passionate and strong. In other words, he says, God still loves you. I think the people were feeling discouraged. There were things that were going on in those return exiles to Jerusalem, and they were discouraged. Things weren't working out the way they thought they should work. But God says, my love is still for you. I'm passionate and strong in my love toward you. Chapter 2 and verse 8 and 10 and, and verses 12 and 13. For God said, anyone who harms you harms the mo my most precious possession. God says, you are my most precious possession. Verse 10, <clears throat> the Lord says, shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you. Verse 12, the land of Judah will be the Lord's special possession in the Holy Land. And he will once again choose Jerusalem to be his own city. Be silent before the Lord, all humanity, for he is springing into action from his holy dwelling. So here is God saying, you are still my special possession. Jerusalem is my special place. I love you. Now, following this highly apocalyptic section... The literary style in the rest of the book of, of Zechariah changes. What are you going to see now beginning uh, with the, the last part of chapter 6 and verse 9 all the way through the end of the book, you're going to see some prophetic oracles or messages that are given. Much of that is found in the style of Hebrew poetry. So you've seen some visions and now it's going to change completely different. And with that change comes a whole section that's going to talk about God's revelation of the coming Messiah. God's revelation of the coming Messiah. <clears throat> See, this coming 
of God's Messiah. And, and of course, this is God himself coming to earth in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, this coming is for the sole purpose of being the sacrifice for the sins of the whole community, of all humanity. And his coming is necessary. Why? Because all of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of God's design for our lives. All of us find ourselves in obedience, uh, disobedience against God, and we're alienated toward God. And so he's saying here, there is help coming. So look in chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. Now, this is one of those little subsections that just kind of... Uh, it's in there. It's kind of a little subsection between the first, the first and the last section there. And it's a story of three men who come from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they bring gifts of gold. And God tells Zechariah to go and take these gifts of gold that really were meant for the people and for the rebuilding of the temple, but to take that gold and to fashion it into a crown. And if you remember last week when we talked about uh, Haggai, there were two leaders that were prominent among those who had returned. There was Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and then there was Jeshua, who was the high priest. Well, this instruction was to make a crown and put it on the head of Jeshua, the high priest. So look in, in verse 12. Tell him, and that means tell Jeshua, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Here is the man called the branch. He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Then he will receive royal honor and will rule as a king from his throne. And he will also serve as a priest from his throne. And there will be perfect harmony between his two roles. Now, one of the things that God says through Zechariah to Jeshua is that you are a symbol of things to come. And so this crowning of the high priest was a symbol of things to come. And the things to come is somebody called the branch. The branch. Branch is an Old Testament term. It's found in Isaiah chapters 4 and 11. It's found here in the book of Zechariah, both in chapters 3 and here in chapter 6. That, is, that stands for the Messiah who is to come. And so here is the, the branch, the Messiah who's coming. And note, he's going to have two different roles. He will rule as king from his throne, and he will, rule as, as, he will serve as priest from his throne. There's two roles there, and do you see that? He's going to be Lord, and he's going to be Savior. That's who the Messiah is going to be. Now, with the beginning of chapter 9, we shift from prose now into poetry. And in these chapters, we're going to find all sorts of glimpses of the Messiah's coming, his purpose, his sacrifice, uh, his triumph. So look at, at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Familiar words, probably. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look. Your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Is that passage familiar to you? Yeah, absolutely. It's speaking of the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, <clears throat> this passage from Zechariah is quoted in Matthew 21 and also in John chapter 12. 
And so this prophecy is a presentation of God's Messiah to his people. I mean, that which they had long expected has now going to is has now arrived. He's coming and he's presenting himself to the people. The next glimpse of the Messiah, then, we're going to find in chapter 11. In chapter 11. And, and um, in this chapter, God's Messiah is presented as a shepherd. Um, <clears throat> Zechariah talks about, you know, the Messiah is coming and he's going to become a shepherd over the flock of Israel. And, uh, uh, and uh, one of the things you recognize is that shepherds were the lowest of the low in the society of that day and time. And so here's a picture of the Messiah becoming lowly. He, you know, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, Paul tells us in Philippians. But also, you're going to see here that there's a wage that's going to be paid, the shepherd's wage to this shepherd. So look in Zechariah 11, beginning of verse 12. I said to them, and this again is the Messiah talking. He's in the role of a shepherd. I said to them, if you like, give me my wages whatever I am worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver was what was paid for a common slave in that day and time. It was what you would pay for a slave. It was a, pen, a, a you know, just a pitiful amount of money that, uh, that was given for him. They counted out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. This magnificent sum at which they value me. Now that's sarcasm there. It's not a magnificent sum. It's a pittance, okay? This magnificent sum at which they valued me. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. Does any of this sound familiar to you from the, old, from the New Testament? I mean, 30 pieces of silver was the price that was paid to Judas by the priests to betray Jesus. Uh, and, and there's the mention here of throwing the money in the temple. Do you remember when G Judas recognized his, his, what he had done was wrong and he went back and tried to return the money to the priests? <clears throat> and he said he, th he flung the, the, the coins into the temple. And do you remember what the priests did with that money? They said, well, we can't put it in the temple treasury. It's blood money. And so instead, they went out and they bought a field that was called the potter's field and turned it into a graveyard for foreigners. And the name of that graveyard, it's mentioned both in Matthew 27 and in Acts chapter 1, was called the field of blood. So here's a glimpse of Jesus who's going to be betrayed into death. And he did it not because Judas betrayed him, but because we needed a Savior. We needed a sacrifice on our behalf. And so this, this idea of, um, you know, the, the silver, 30 pieces of silver and all, again, is quoted in Matthew 27, and then it's alluded to in Acts chapter 1. The next glimpse we see of the Messiah is in chapter 12, in verse 10. It says, then I poured out a spirit of grace and power on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. And they will look on me whom they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. They will grieve bitterly for him 
as for a firstborn son who has died. This verse from Zechariah is quoted in both John chapter 19 and in the book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. And so this prophecy is really speaking of the crucifixion and very specifically talking about the fact that one of the Roman uh, soldiers pierced the side of Jesus with his sword. And again, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus died a horrible death, and he did it for you, and he did it for me. Now, you remember um, an old hymn by William Cowper that uh, we sometimes sang that, was, uh, that went by this, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and uh, sinners plunged beneath that flood had all their, or lose all their guilty stain. Well, that hymn is taken out of this very next messianic prophecy that we find in the book of Zechariah. Look at Zechariah 13 and verse 1. It says, On that day a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurities. <coughs> that is a stark reminder that it's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that our sins are forgiven and that our, our penalty is paid. Uh, recognize in the Old Testament, it, sacrificial system, it, it talks about the fact that the life is in the blood. Life is in the blood. In other words, when Jesus Christ shed his blood, when he poured out his blood, he was pouring out his life for us. He was giving all for us to cleanse us from all of our sin. And, and John, in his first letter, says this, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And so Jesus Christ had to die. And through his death, we are made right with God. We have that potential of being right with God. Here in chapter 13 of Zechariah, there's one more glimpse of the Messiah. Verse uh, 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the man who is my partner. Again, the Messiah is the shepherd here. Uh, the man who is my partner, says the Lord of heaven's army. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn against the lambs. You know, in Mark's gospel in chapter 14, just before Jesus was arrested, while the disciples were making their way from the upper room out to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus quoted this verse to his disciples. Mark 14, verse 27. On the way, Jesus told them, All of you will desert me. For the scripture says, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So it's here in uh, this uh, verse from Zechariah is quoted in Mark 14, but it's also quoted in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31. Now, when you move into chapter 14 of Zechariah, the very last chapter, we're going to see one more glimpse of the Messiah, <coughs> excuse me, in his, in his uh, second coming. Um, let's pick up reading there in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 and 5. It says, on that day, his feet, and he's talking about the Messiah, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will be moved toward the north and half toward the south. You will flee through the valley. That's what the, the first part of verse 5 says. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. You know, the, the Mount of Olives is intimately tied 
to Jesus Christ in the gospel records. I mean, think about it. It was under uh, those olive trees on the Mount of Olives where Jesus prayed, that, and then he was betrayed and arrested. It was here on the Mount of Olives where angels appeared to the disciples to tell them this same Jesus that you've just seen ascend into heaven will come again in like manner. He's going to ascend back. And to the Mount of Olives. And, you know, it, it's on the Mount of Olives, even before the, the, the prayer in the garden, that Jesus met with his disciples under the shade of those trees. And he talked to them about the end times, the events that were coming in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and, and other places to tell them about the end times. And so here is a prophecy that, that says that at the end of the age, you see that on that day, and that's talking about the day of the Lord, the, the end of time. On that day, Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will split in two, creating an escape path for the people of God. We're going to, to, to escape through it from the destruction that is coming. But it's also going to open a way for God to come to wage war on Israel's enemies. And so the Messiah would come again. And, and you see the picture here? He's going to establish his kingdom for all of eternity. Uh, that's predicted very boldly in chapter 14 and verse 9 here in Zechariah. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. And so here is this picture of the enemy of evil it will be destroyed and all of his forces and here's the Lord who's going to reign supreme over all the earth. And the picture really is that of a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that God is God. And Jesus is Lord. So here's the coming of the Messiah. We've seen the need. All of us are sinners. God's love for us. And so out of his love comes the provision of a Messiah. Now I want to circle all the way back around and talk about how his redemption is pictured in this book. Let's go back to chapter 3. Chapter 3, because this is a picture of God's redemption for our sin. God's redemption for our sins. Look at Zechariah chapter 3 and beginning at verse 1. And again, you recognize this is apocalyptic. So here's an angel, and he's giving a vision or giving a message to Zechariah. It says, Then the angel showed me Jeshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand making accusations against Jeshua. Folks, one of the names of Satan is a name that means the accuser, the adversary. Uh, that is a role that Satan relishes. He loves to accuse people before God. We see this in the book of Job. Do you remember in chapter 1 in, in Job, you know, God says, have you considered my, my man Job? And, and, and the devil says, ah, he, 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 he trusts you for nothing. You take away all the blessing that you give him, and he'll curse you to his face. So Satan's job is to accuse people before God. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice shouting from heaven, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser 
of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. You recognize Satan is an accuser. He would love nothing else than to accuse you before God to say, man, he's worthless. She's no good. Uh, folks, can I just simply tell you this? You don't need to badmouth yourself. Satan does a good job of that before Christ, okay? Before God. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do his work for him. Uh, because he's going to do that anyway, okay? And then let's pick up in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations. Satan, yes, the Lord who chose Jerusalem rebukes you. I am so glad that's there because you know what? God does that for, for you and I as well. Satan comes and he accuses us and he says, oh, you've, you've seen old Pastor Sam. He is worthless. He does this, blah, 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 blah. And God says, I rebuke you, Satan. You know why he does that? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all my sin. Isn't that tremendous? Satan can blow smoke all day long. And God says, I rebuke you. Love it. Love it. Goes on and he says about Jeshua, he says, This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Boy, that's a descriptive of all of us, isn't it? You know, save for the grace of God, where would we be? Goes on in verse 3. Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood before the angel. Um, I'm reminded of Isaiah 64 and verse 6. It says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. So here is Jeshua. And again, remember, Jeshua is a symbol of things to come. In this case, Jeshua is a symbol of us all. And he's standing before God in filthy clothes. Verse 3, uh, I mean chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. So the angel said to the others standing there, Take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Jeshua, he said, See, I have taken away your sins. And now I am giving you these fine new clothes. Then I said, and this is uh, Zechariah here saying, They should also place a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean priestly turban on his head and dressed him in new clothes while the angel of the Lord stood by. The turban of the high priest had a metal plate on it that had inscribed in it the words, Holiness to the Lord. So here is Jeshua, standing before God, accused by Satan, <clears throat> dressed in filthy rags, and God says, let me put new clothes on you. Let me put a new symbol on you that says holiness to the Lord. Folks, that's what salvation is. That's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. He clothes us in his own righteousness, gives to us a brand new name and a new title that we're holy to the Lord. Look at verse 6 through 8. Then the angel of the Lord spoke very solemnly to Jeshua and said, This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you will be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. 
I will let you walk among the others standing here. Listen to me, O Jeshua high priest and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I am going to bring my servant the branch. The Messiah is coming and his job is going to be to exchange our filthy rags for his clothing of righteousness. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you see that exchange that's going on there? You and I, our, our lives are tainted and covered with sin. But because of Jesus Christ's death, because he shed his blood, God takes our unrighteousness and he gives to us Christ's righteousness instead. Um, Paul spoke about that in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. He says, what's more, he says, I consider everything, compare, uh, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for, whom, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. See, that's what we don't want. What are our righteousness? Our righteousness is filthy rags. He says, I don't want to be found in, in him having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law through my efforts, through what I try to do to impress God. But instead, I want that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. You see, you and I have this, this innate tendency to want to try to work for things. We have this thing called the Protestant work ethic in American history where, you know, you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's through your own effort that you make success, that you gain status in life, that anything that you want out of life, you've got to work for. And we have this tendency to want to carry that over into our, into our relationship with God. And we think that somehow I can impress God through all the things that I'm doing. That I'm, you know, giving money and I'm just working with the poor and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I've been baptized and I got my name on a church roll and on and on and on we go. Look how good I am. And the Bible says when God looks at our righteous deeds, what does he see? Filthy rags. Folks, I don't want to stand before God dressed in filthy rags. Do you? That's where Jesus comes in. Because he comes to give to us his righteousness. <laughs> he takes away our filthy rags, just like the angel did to Jeshua here. And he gives to us his very righteousness. And so Isaiah could sing out in great joy in Isaiah 61.10, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for He has dressed me in clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom in His wedding suit or a bride in all her jewels. God does that for us through Jesus Christ. We had a need. We were all sinners. God loved us. He gave us his Messiah who died that we might have his righteousness so that when we stand before God, we stand not clothed in our own filthy rags, but clothed in his righteousness 
So that when God sees us, he sees us as righteous before him. So friends, yeah, we're all sinners. And you and I could beat ourselves up all day long about how bad and how rough we are and how, how you know, this, that, and the other about ourselves. We don't need to do that. Satan's doing that for us, okay? But instead, we can stand before God. And when God looks at us, he sees us as perfect in Jesus Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. I hope that you can find identity in that, that will give you strength and, and, and resolve to go through this week ahead, to know that you stand clothed in Christ's own righteousness, and he considers you his perfect, precious child. Aren't you glad for the book of Zechariah that gives to us these glimpses of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ? Yeah, there's 18 weeks till Christmas. But man, we ought to be celebrating his coming every single day between now and then. Because in it, we have righteousness before our God. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ, for his atoning work on our behalf. I pray that we wouldn't beat ourselves up that we would recognize what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that when you look at us, you see us complete and holy, holy to the Lord before you because of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.